The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're discussing glue from two very different times. First up, Dr. Tian Yu Li tells us about his research into a new type of medical adhesive. Then, Dr. Heiske Lang and Jans explains her work making and investigating Stone Age glues. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marianne Kilgore. Joining me is Dr. Jian Yu Li, Assistant Professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at McGill University. He completed his PhD in mechanical engineering at Harvard University and his postdoctoral research at the Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard. He was the recipient of a Wies Technology Development Award for enabling translational research, and his work has been published in high-impact journals such as Science, Nature Communications, and Nature Reviews materials. His research interests include biomaterials, mechanics, soft machines, drug delivery, cellular and tissue engineering. So thanks for speaking to us today. Okay, thank you. It's uh, my great pleasure uh, to be invited here. I would just like to start off with some background on how adhesives are currently used in medicine before we get into some of the newer research that you've been doing. I would normally think of stitches or staples to seal up a wound, but where do adhesives currently get used? Yes, so that's a really good starting question. So actually, uh, adhesive has been increasingly used in the clinical setting. And the application, you are right, so they are mainly used to close a wound or glue separate part of tissue together after like a surgery. And But however, uh, due to the limit of mechanical property of many of the adhesive using nowadays, uh, still the most common practice is using suture staples in the clinic. And there are a very active research uh, going on is to develop a better adhesive, uh, which ultimately uh, can replace suture or staples in the future. So what are some of the difficulties in using adhesives on biological tissues? So I think there are two main uh, difficulties people have found when using the adhesive uh, interface with biological tissue. The first one is about the safety, it's about the uh, biocompatibility. So, I mean, everyone familiar with the cyanoacrylate, which is also known as the superglue we use a lot in our daily life. So this one, although has a good uh, mechanical property, but the biocompatibility is quite limited. So uh, the, uh, the standard now uh, for cyanoacrylate, like they can use for skin wound, but they cannot use uh, inside uh, the human body. Another problem uh, for the adhesive is like, uh, the mechanical uh, strength in general, uh, because uh, many uh, existing commercial products of those adhesives, the tissue adhesives, uh, has a very relatively low adhesive strength and also has a relatively low uh, bulk uh, strength. So which means they are easily uh, ruptured or debunked from the dynamic deforming tissues or organs, such as the heart, the lung, uh, which are highly dynamic in nature. So what, uh, when you talk about the biocompatibility of an, of an adhesive, um, does that mean that when you would use it on, like, say, if you were trying to use super glue on an internal organ, it would damage the tissues? Uh, yes. So, uh, yeah, we also have uh, done the research on this part. So basically, we have uh, done the in- 
virtual, I mean, the test uh, outside the body or inside the body. And the results showing, so first, the center accurate will release some uh, toxic uh, chemicals. So, and that is really bad for the cell. So basically, they will kill the cell in the body. Uh, or it will be kind of, uh, the cell will grow very unhealthy. And another problem is like they will cause uh, a severe or relatively strong inflammation reaction in the body. So basically, the body will recognize, oh, the, this material is foreign material, uh, and they're secreting some bad stuff, uh, and they will have the the inflammation reaction. Uh, try to isolate it, uh, or try to screen uh, this material from the other part of the tissues. So I mean, these two uh, problems uh, make uh, the sound accolades not applicable inside the body. Okay, yeah. You don't want the tissue worrying about reacting to the adhesive rather than healing. Right, yes, exactly. So, you've been doing work on a new type of adhesive. Um, so, could you tell us a bit about that, that work and what's been going on there? Uh, okay, so yeah, I'm pretty uh, glad to introduce our work here. So, our work has recently published on, on science. Uh, and the the basic motivation of our work uh, I has just discussed about is like the existing uh, adhesive uh, have uh, limitations. Uh, and the strategy we took in this work is learning the lessons from the nature. What we have looked at uh, is the very small creature, the, the slug. So and that's a, a specific uh, type of slug. So when they feel distress, they are under attack. They were secreted a slug defensive mucus, which will help the slug to to stick to a surface, uh, kind of as a manner uh, to protect themselves from like the attack by bird. And we basically uh, we try to replicate the structure, uh, all the basic biochemical uh, property of low slug defensive mucus, and engineer them in with uh, a, a, a biopolymers. Uh, and to create a adhesive which can stick on different kinds of tissue and also achieve a pretty high uh, adhesion performance. So uh, the slugs that inspired this adhesive, how big are they? Are we talking uh, a centimeter long or are they larger slugs? Uh, yeah, it, it's centimeter long. It's not, not huge. It's a small one. It's probably high like on the, on the corner of the wall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it, it, it's pretty small. And yeah. when they when they secrete glue, basically, um, is this something they can do quite quickly, or do they need warning that a bird is trying to come and eat them? So they're, they're secreted in a really uh, fast uh, manner. Yeah, so they are secreted quickly. So they they basically they were storage uh, uh, in themselves, and to secrete that immediately when they are under attack. And then, I'm just always curious about this with animals that use glues and whatnot, how do they get themselves out of their sticky situation when the predator has gone? Do they have some sort of solvent that they can secrete? Yeah, so actually that's a really good question. For, for us, we more, yeah, so uh, the, the simple question, actually, we, we, we don't know that detail about the, the, the animals, the, the, the biology uh, of that, that well, uh, since we are chemists. So we mainly focus on the adhesive uh, property 
of uh, those equations. And yeah, so yeah, so 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 that's it. Yeah. Fair enough. What are the advantages of taking inspiration for this sort of thing from biology? We are in the Wies Institute for Biological Inspire Engineering. So actually, you can find uh, many similar type of similar type of the bioinspired work from our institute. I mean, I think a lot of su- success uh, demonstrate the the lesson from nature is quite powerful. Uh, particularly in our work, it's like we we learn from the mechanical and also the biochemical property of the low slug. It's like we need to not just engineer the surface of those adhesive in order to bind with something, we also need to engineer the bulk uh, property of those uh, glue. So, and the synergy between the interface and the bulk together will lead to a great uh, performance. So, and those very fundamental understanding, uh, which kind of also distinguish our work from all the previous work, uh, as we propose a new mechanisms to achieve the strong adhesions. So how does the new adhesive work? You mentioned uh, good interface bond as well as good right. properties. Yeah, um, so we can think of this problem very intuitively, right? So in order to form any kind of adhesions, uh, you need to something to anchor onto the target surface. And those anchor is uh, contributed uh, uh, by the chemical bonds. So the first feature of our material is like they can form a covalent, very strong covalent chemical bonds uh, with the target surface, so such as the biological tissues. And the second feature is like uh, we need a mechanism uh, just like those in the slug defensive mucus in the bulk, in the matrix of the glue itself. So in this case, we designed the very unique polymer network, which can help to reinforce the interface. So you can consider that as like kind of a composite material. So when you want to take off this adhesive from a tissue, you're not just to breaking the bone at the interface, but you also need to uh, do more work to disrupt uh, the the matrix. So uh, by doing that, uh, so we can using the the background, the matrix to reinforce the adhesion surface. So that's the synergy uh, I'm talking about. With the covalent bond, could you just get into that a little in a little bit more detail uh, for those of us whose chemistry was a little while ago? Yeah, actually, that, that's a very very important chemistry. It involves a lot uh, in any almost any kind of biological processes. The chemical bond that evolves is amine and carboxylic acids, and the 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 the, the product will be a, a bond named amide. So you 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 will find this bond a lot in any kind of protein because basically you know that uh, our biological molecule are long chain and the joint between the each segment actually is this bond in our body it's like the the amine bonds are linked together uh, uh, the, the each amino acid to form a protein so basically our material also take advantage of this, the same chemistry in order to forming those bonds with the tissue surface oh, okay yeah okay yeah so that's interesting um, so then the matrix itself that the adhesive is applied to, um, what is that made out of? Uh, yeah, so the matrix is made of uh, biopolymers. Uh, what we talk about is like the long-term molecule, uh, which is secreted, produced by uh, algae. So, to, uh, and that that's the polymer called it alginate. So that's the main ingredient of the matrix. So it's a biopolymer. 
uh, and also uh, the it also contains another biopolymer named chitosan. Uh, is also a, a, a ingredient you can find in the sh- in the in, uh, on the shell of shrimps. So like mm. so the, the shell of the shrimp is pretty rigid. So actually there are many cases of those kind of biopolymers. Uh, and that's the two main ingredient of our material. And in addition to uh, a small uh, an, uh, another component is synthetic polymer. So then uh, what makes this a good choice? Of material to use as the matrix for the adhesive. Uh, okay, so so that's the reasoning uh, for choosing uh, those matrices. I think that uh, is twofold. So the first one uh, is in terms of the chemistry. Uh, what I've talked about is like uh, most of those ingredients are uh, biologically or naturally derived. So which means they are safe. Uh, and they are biocompatible. Uh, the, another feature is about their mechanical property. Uh, and basically, uh, I also show in our papers, like the low adhesive, unlike the, the, the superglue, which is a rigid plastic, uh, is highly stretchable and a very tough uh, uh, material. So basically, you can you can see that it's like the there's a toy then then the the outer Armstrong is like a rubber. You you can really kind of extend it, stretch it, and without rupturing it. So uh, and those measures uh, is the key in order to to reinforce the bonding and reinforce the adhesions. So would this um so would this adhesive be applied more like almost a, a double sided sticky tape or like a, a a liquid coming out of a glue bottle or could it go on either way? Uh yeah, so this uh, is a really good question. Uh, and for the published work, uh, the adhesive uh, is in a form as like a sticky uh, tape. So basically, it's more like a tape or patch. You can consider that. So there has a one size adhesive, another size can or, or can be adhesive or or, or it's non adhesive. So it's like a, a, a tape. But we are currently working on another formulation, which is like uh, the, the the adhesive is uh, initially is a liquid, and you apply it on a tissue surface, and it form a glue. Uh, it, it form a matrix on the tissues. So they they can come in principle. They can come into two formulation. Uh, and the the published work is the the former one, which is the adhesive patch. Like yeah. so, once it's applied. Does it need a curing time? Would you have to, I'm thinking in terms of like woodworking, you often clamp pieces together. Would you have right. to do that with the tissues in this case? Uh, yes. So so for, for this one, you mean you talk about it's like the waiting time in order to form the adhesion? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. So so indeed. Uh, so there, there are always a time like uh, time scale for any sort of chemical reactions. So as I said, we are we are we're using a, a chemical reaction to form the chemical bonds with the tissues. Uh, so we have shown in our work it's like uh, adhesion can form like in two minutes, uh, and also it will slowly increase over time, and you reach uh, a, a maximum around like half hours. Uh, so and the, and the take home message is like the 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 delay the adhesion formation time is relatively quick and. But of course, it's not as rapid as the the super glue, which is kind of cured in seconds. And in in practice, in some time, it's like for that fast uh, adhesion, you don't have time to 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 reposition the material. For for our for our, our system, it's like yeah, you still you have you have the the like 
two minutes, rough two minutes at a time, you can reposition the material and then you can optimize that. Yeah. So basically, that's a time window which can be tuned. <laughs> yes, Rep- repositioning super glue has right be- is always it, challenging, as yeah, I'm sure I, anyone who has used it at home important. knows. Yes. Yes. So with this adhesive and the alginate matrix, what would break first? The adhesive bond to the tissue or the matrix itself? Yeah, that's another good question. And let's actually just talk a little bit about more technical term. It's like uh, if the matrix breaks first, it call, we call it like a cohesive failure. And if the, the bonding surface break, we call it like an interfacial failure. We also have shown in our, our, our paper, it's like for our material, uh, the interface is so strong and the failure will, will mainly occur in the matrix. So which means they are tend to undergo the, the, the cohesive failure uh, because of uh, a super uh, strong, robust interface. So, um, since this is being, or since this is intended to, for use on biological tissues, how well does it handle uh, being applied to a surface that's still wet? Like if there's blood on the surface, or or some sort of fluid. The yeah, we call it like the the body uh, liquid compatibility is also a very critical issue. And for the feature of our system, it's like all the chemistry and all the material are based on water compa- compatible material and water compatible mechanisms. So in this case, the if the surface is exposed to a blood or any other type of body fluid, and uh, the, uh, it won't kind of interference with the adhesion. Uh, if like you apply uh, a gentle like compression just to bring the material contact with with the tissues. So with that gentle compression and the, and the blood or other sort of body fluid uh, are not a problem. Oh, okay. So as long as you right. compress the adhesive against the surface, right. it moves enough of the blood out of the way that it can bond? Uh, yes, yes. Huh, that would yeah. be handy for bandages. Cause... Yeah, actually, we also work on that. <laughs> we, we, we have ongoing work is, is work on the adhesive bandages. Okay. Yeah. Um, so... With these materials, since they're biologically derived um, and and not something like super glue, would they be usable for uh, long-term internal use? Yeah. So for the long-term internal use, there are several concerns, and and also we have uh, done a, a few preliminary tests. So basically, we implant our material into animals and to see. The long-term compatibility and the long-term uh, stability, and, and and the result were quite positive. But if you talk about the long-term, means like several years or even tens of years. Uh, until now, we don't have any uh, result or uh, uh, to 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 support those arguments. But in terms of the chemistry, our material can be quite stable over the long term. Yeah. So it wouldn't necessarily dissolve if you used it on an internal organ. It would it would potentially stick around uh, yeah. for a while? Uh, so it, it, yeah, so we, the, yeah, so in, in the, this question is related to the biodegradation, the biodegradability, mm-hmm. uh, and for our system, like the alginate talked about, there are existing uh, protocol, a uh, technique which can engineer the alginate to, to dissolve 
slowly over time uh, in the body and in a very controlled manner. And it, it is possible uh, can also not to make those material uh, permanently stable, but to make it uh, dissolve uh, in the body over time. So, uh, so you talked about how you're continuing to do work on a, a sort of liquid version of this adhesive. What else? What other work would you like to see done with this uh, type of technology? Yes, yeah, we're pretty excited about this technology uh, because they, uh, as I said, it solves a big obstacles like in the field of tissue repair and regeneration, uh, and the potential uh, is enormous. It's not not just for for the, the 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 glue or the bandages you are talking about. They can also be used to deliver drug and to use to repair a disease generated uh, tissues such as the cartilage and all tendons. So we are pretty exciting like to move forward is that using those systems to do drug delivery or to use it to use it for the cartilage or tendon uh, repair and regeneration application. So how would that work with the cartilage regeneration? Would it form like a like a lattice sort of uh, structure for new cells to grow on? Uh, so in this case, yeah, we also, uh, yeah, we, 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 we can engineer the, the, the matches to, to slowly dissolve over time. Uh, so by doing that, so they will uh, create a space to that the cell uh, to grow in to proliferate. Uh, and in this case, they will facilitate the tissue formation. Mm, yep. That's pretty neat. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, so what about the use of this adhesive in something outside of medicine? Would there be applications there? Yeah, so yeah, we can see there are great potential in the biomedical since the material is biocompatible and also they are water-based. Besides the biomedical application, and there are also active research in the fields such as soft robotics and soft machine and all the, the like implantable devices, wearable devices. So for, for them, it's like because this material is highly stretchable and also can uh, highly stretchable and can form a good interface with the body. They can as, uh, work as inter- interface material to bring uh, the the robotics are on the machine to interface with the with the humans. Yeah, I think, but maybe that this is still related biomedical. Yeah, I have to say that the 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 main application we are focused on is yeah, it's related to humans. Yeah. yeah, you you mentioned that the material is quite stretchy. So how how stretchy are we talking? Is it uh, like an elastic band or? Yeah, actually it's more than that. So it can be two or three times stretchy than the elastic band. Oh. So in general, the elastic band can stretch to six, five times its, its initial length. Our material actually can stretch it, as shown in our paper, stretch it more than 14 times its initial length. And and that's an elastic deformation? It goes back to its original shape after that sort of stretch? Yes. So it, it's different from the city party, like when you stretch it and they, they cannot go back. But our material, they, they remain uh, elastic. So for something like uh, if you were gluing together uh, pieces of an organ that moves like the heart, uh, does it show any fatigue characteristics or or would it stay in in its elastic range for those sorts of applications? Mm, yeah, so that, that's a good question. Uh, and in our paper, we also show that the performance like under long-term cyclic loading, such as the beating of the heart, uh, we have tested, I, 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 
yeah, like ten, tens of thousand cycles and the material remain elastic. So we, we don't see kind of the debonding or rupture uh, happens at the end after tens of thousand cycles. Hmm. I'm, uh, I have to admit, I'm not used to dealing with uh, materials that are particularly elastic. So I'm always entertained by something that can stretch and go back <laughs> to its original shape that many times. Yeah, so at uh, least it, it you can stretch it through to large strands, so it's more more visual compared to like steel or metal. Actually, the deformation is almost invisible from the bare eyes. Yeah. So, so the matrix can stretch quite a lot, and the adhesion with tissues is actually stronger than that. So, these these sorts of materials can definitely you can. It sounds like you can put them under quite a lot of abuse. So, so those material, I mean, uh, in, in general, we're pretty exciting about the mechanical property, and 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 th- th- this mechanical property can be used like in many uh, disease or many settings associated with the dynamic uh, tissue or organs, uh, and and also the this mechanical property, for example, yeah, such as the skin, the heart, the lung, the cartilage, tendon. And, and all those type of the tissue, they need to sustain large strain or they need to sustain large stresses. Uh, and I think our materials uh, system uh, are well positioned for the application associated with those kind of tissues. So what are you going to be working on next? Or are you just focused on one thing at a time? Uh uh, yeah, we, we now mainly focus on, yeah, so I think that two main things, uh, are on my table. Uh, the first thing, uh, is to further, uh, like to expand the arsenals we have based on our design principle, try to, uh, add more function into our material, uh, including like the drug delivery property and also the, the cell growth property. It can allow the cell to grow in. This is the one one direction. Another direction uh, we are also pursuing is to uh, looking for the the clinical translation. Uh, and you can we can see that there are many potential applications, but we have to uh, do more work, like to identify the target market and also to identify like the killer application of, of our innovation in order to to make a real impact uh, in the in the clinic. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I think it's it's a really intriguing adhesive that, that I hadn't heard anything about before. Okay, thank you so much. And thank you again for inviting me. You can learn more about Dr. Lee and find links to information about his work on medical adhesives at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. There you can also find past episodes, our social media links, and learn how to support the show. We'll be right back after this with more Science for the People. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca.
Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marian Kilgore. Joining me is Dr. Heiske Langejans, a Stone Age and Paleolithic archaeologist based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. She started her career as a residue analyst, studying microscopic remains left on prehistoric tools after their use, and she recently completed a study of prehistoric plant exploitation and the complexity of plant-based technologies, where ancient adhesives became a main research avenue. So thanks for speaking to us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's always fun to talk about uh, my work, so yeah. <laughs> so could you actually just explain a little bit about your field of research and the types of questions you investigate? Um, well, as you said, I'm an archaeologist, and my um, let's say my main a field of research is Stone Age archaeology or Paleolithic archaeology. So you say Stone Age for, for African archaeology and Paleolithic for um, Europe and I, th I think also for uh, for the Americas. Um, so it's uh, Paleolithic archaeology and, and that means uh, hunter-gatherers. But if you go back far enough in time, it, it also means uh, Neanderthals and early modern humans. And my main interest is the behavior of these early hominins. Um, how did they react to uh, climate change? How flexible was their technology? How did they go about in a landscape, particularly with this environment that, that may or may not have been changing? And what was driving technological change? And um, of course, we, we study technology mainly through um, lithic analysis, looking at stone tools, because that's obviously what preserves best. Um, but my interest is in uh, in organic remains. And, and, and yeah, as you explained in the introduction, it's um, currently it's, it's adhesives. They are uh, plant-based uh, remains as well. And we know very little about uh, plant technology. So that's the interesting. Because you mentioned um, obviously stone tools preserve reasonably well over time, but how yeah. do organic residues uh, preserve in the archaeological record? Bone preserves um, better, of course, than most other organics because they have a high mineral content. So we know more about bones. But when you think about, um, uh, let's say, wood woodworking or maybe basketry, uh, things like rope, those are all yeah organic technologies and organics that we that generally we don't find anymore. And there are some wonderful exceptions. Um, one example is a fantastic find of bedding made in southern Africa, and that that's dated to seventy thousand years ago. And those were leaves, very fine leaves that they found in the sediment. Um, but they they are exceptions. And sometimes, when circumstances are right, you find organic remains left on stone tools. But then, generally, you also have other organic preservation at the site, like those leaves. Uh, or adhesives, uh, little pieces of rope, uh, not remains or nutlets. So would these be organic residues then that fossilized onto the tools? Mm, no, but uh, what does happen is that they um, they dry out so in a in a good environment that is dry. Um, they dry out, and because they are so dry, um, they preserve very well. Okay. Um, and 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 a lot of. Um, uh, let, let's say bacteria and and other things that live in the soil, they don't they don't like uh, adhesives. There's not much left in there that for nutrients. So yeah, that's why they preserve. 
So, um, so what types of adhesives is there evidence of early hominids using with their tools? Well, that depends. If you, if we first look at Europe, um, we have um, currently uh, two sites, uh, one in Germany and one in Italy, that preserve uh, remains of birch bark tar. Those uh, finds are, are well dated and they were also chem- chemically analyzed. So we, we know for sure that that's what's there. And those finds are about 200,000 years old. Um, the one in um, in Italy, that is, and the one in Germany is a little bit younger, dated to about 80,000 years old. Then when it comes to modern humans, the earliest evidence is from Southern Africa. And that's dated around 70 to 60,000 years ago. Um, but the, the, and those are, it's not quite clear. They've been chemically analyzed, but it could be a tree resin, but it could also be a tar. It's a bit, a little bit unclear because of course, when these remains are so old, um, they, they do decay chemically. Um, and, and it's sometimes difficult to analyze them. Um, but most likely it's a resin. And, and there are other sites in Southern Africa that have, uh, possibly adhesive, possible adhesive remains, but they were not, uh, chemically verified. Uh, and they were about 60,000 years old. So, with, um, yeah. With these, um, you, you mentioned tree, tar and resins derived from trees. So how do you know that these yeah. materials were used intentionally and weren't just accidental oh, residue on, yeah. a tr- on a tool? Yeah, well, there, there, are, there are different ways of, of, of doing that. But the most uh, obvious way to know this is, is uh, looking at, for example, the birch bark tar. Those are actually massive amounts. Um, it, um, the, the old ones that we've that were found, the the amount of birch bark is actually more than the, the tool that they are attached to. So these are quite big amounts. It's not something that you can make accidentally in a fire, although it's, it's quite possible that, you know, when you throw in a log of uh, birch wood, that you will make some tar that maybe doesn't burn in the fire. But these amounts, that's it's impossible. And then it needs to get attached to a tool and also attached in a, on to a tool that, that looks to us as archaeologists is very logical. So that's, you know, that's, that's almost a bit too much. Um, for the South African material, it's a little bit uh, more complicated because these are really microscopic remains. And, um, but what people did here is that under the microscope, they, they actually mapped these little spots of residue that they found. So together they were able to sort of backtrack where the adhesive was. Um, they don't have these big clumps, but they just have, um, yeah, yeah, how do you call it? Like a, yeah, a map, roadmap of where the, and then that also makes sense in terms of hafting. And then when you see that pattern of hafting repeated on 30 tools, it's very unlikely that it's accidental. So what were the adhesives on these tools um, connecting? Were they keeping some sort of string from unwrapping or were they attaching two pieces together? Well, that's, that's a, well, that's a really good question because we don't really know. And, um, for the South African material, because we're really talking about, uh, microscopic residues, uh, in most cases, it's, it's very difficult to say, 
how these tools were hafted. We think they were used in, in a hafting arrangement. Also because we find them on tools, on these logical places where we expect a tool to be hafted. Um, um, but it's, it, yeah, it's, so it, I find that very difficult to answer. But technically, you could haft a tool without the adhesive. If you have a, a haft, an organic haft made out of wood, and you have a tool, and if the haft and the tool have a good fit, you could use sinew, animal sinew. Um, you wet it and you tie it around it, and when it dries, it becomes very hard. So basically, you could just use that. The advantage of using an adhesive is that you can invest less time in making the haft and the tool fit. So it doesn't have to be a perfect fit. Actually, it's sort of this, uh, the, the, the adhesive is like a filler. It, it makes the perfect fit. And with the bonus that it also has, uh, it adds strength to the joint. Um, so I think when we find adhesive, it, it definitely, uh, means that, uh, it was, it, I mean, it was connecting a, a tool, uh, a tool to a haft most likely. But at this stage, we can't say if there was like sinew or some other type of binding used. It may have, they may have been using that around uh, the tool and around the adhesive again because we don't find everything we don't see the imprint on on the outside of the adhesive um, because that would be a, a possibility of course that although the binding might decay we could find a, like a negative an imprint in the in the tar for example but up to now we haven't found it um the other way you could use uh, the adhesive is that the adhesive itself is a handle, and and in that and that means that you yeah that's uh, like most people don't think about it like that. But um, you have a stone tool, and and fresh stones when they're just snapped, they are really they can be really sharp on all sides. Um, and let's say the tool maker intended one edge uh, to be used, uh, and the other the other side, what you can do is you can take uh, like a piece of um, a piece of um, animal hide maybe to protect your hands but the other thing that you could do is use tar or resin to cover that area of the tool that's really sharp and mold it around it and there you go you don't damage your hands and as the adhesive dries it becomes very strong um, so it that's also a possibility we should consider. And, you know, I think for the uh, Neanderthal uh, tools, this, this could be a possibility. For the, the tools made by modern humans in Southern Africa, it's a bit more difficult because we have so few remains. Um, but, of course, adhesives could also still be used for, for other things. We don't, at this stage, we don't have any evidence for it. But we know for later time periods that uh, tar uh, and resins are used to waterproof things, uh, like hide, but think of uh, canoes, um, but also uh, other other skins and, uh, and even like glue pottery back together, although that's obviously much, much later in time. Huh, okay. So you you recently worked on a project to experiment w with different methods of making tar from birch bark. Uh, yeah. So why was it important to try actually making the tar? Well, because basically nobody had ever done it before. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and these archaeologists sometimes, um, they are a bit like theoretical cooks. 
they 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 sort of know how to make a pancake but they've never done it um so they have all these theories about what it means to make tar and how complicated it is to make tar um but when you actually do things things are uh, different you know you you make uh, you make even when you're baking you know maybe you need to add a little bit more milk or you actually see that your dough requires something else um and and that's how um any technology works so it's good to actually try and replicate these things and um and that's something I really like, but it's also uh, a research, a way I do research is uh, by using experimental archaeology. So when we were reading all these things about uh, tar and tar technology and the implications, mainly about uh, the intelligence of Neanderthals, um, we were actually wondering, well, is that really so? And do we really know that? And how was tar made? Um, and other people have tried this, obviously. And and we took their research as a baseline and we, we learned from their mis- mistakes. And uh, as a result, we were able to um, replicate tar production uh, in three different ways. So uh, what was involved? What were the three different ways that people thought you might be able to make these quantities of tar that you find on the tools? Uh, well, there are uh, there's uh, there's a very simple way and there's a medium way, and we also uh, found a very complex way of doing it. So, starting it with the easiest method is what you do is you take um, um, uh, so you take birch bark and you roll it up um, and you put it in in the ash of a fire, hot. And you cover it with coals and you cover it with ash. And you leave it for a while. And you take the roll out after about 15 minutes. And as you unroll the bark, uh, tar has been formed in, in between. And you can actually scrape the tar from the roll, like scraping it from uh, a sheet of paper. Um, but... You know, you, you, to get to any quantity uh, that we find archaeologically, you, you know, you need about 30 rolls. So, you know, you need to do it many times. So another way, uh, another method that we, that we found out, I guess, how do you say that? Yeah. Well, another method, method we discovered is that you take a roll and you put it in a little pit in the ground. And on top of that, you leave a few coals, coals burning. And at the bottom of this pit is a little container. And as the bark sort of smolders from the heat of the coal star is formed and it drips into this little container. Now there we had uh, more tar coming from this uh, this method. Mm, the most complicated method that we discovered uh, is what we called a raised structure method. And here we dug a little hole and we put a container inside. And the containers that we used uh, actually were uh, made out of birch bark to make it uh, very topical. And um, and so it, we have a hole, we have a container inside, there's a, a, a grid over it made with willow twigs. We put some rocks on top of that for heat conduction. Then came the birch bark. And over that, just with earth and a little bit of clay, we molded a little dome. And over that dome, we lit a fire. And that fire was burning for about six hours. And when all of that was done and we re-excavated the container. We had tar in the container. The tar had dripped uh, down. 
And that method is what we think is the most complex one because there are many steps uh, that you you um, that are required to get to tar production. Um, but it was also it, it also had the highest yield. So if we got one gram of tar uh, per a hundred grams of bark in the simple method, we got ten times as much in the more complicated method. Okay. Did when you were trying these methods, um, were your later iterations of each method more successful than your first tries? Yeah, definitely. And that's also something that we that we keep telling uh, everybody that we talk to, and and I think we also wrote it in the paper is that you know what we're not really good uh, craftsmen, and, and Neanderthals must have been so much better at this than we were, because this was a huge learning curve for us as well. Um, we were only successful the third time we went back into the field, and we. Um, you know, we actually spend a week in the field making fires, trying everything. And at one point, we, I think this was in the second, uh, f- week or the second field season, I would say we go for one, one week at a time. And in that second week, we, uh, we were really successful with the, the raised structure method, the most complicated method, but we kept using a tin, like, but we used a tin. And as soon as we put a birch bark container in, it failed and it was so frustrating and we couldn't get it to work with the, mm-hmm. with this, yeah, with this damn organic container. But we, we knew Neanderthals must have done it like that. So it was like, keep trying. And that's when we thought there, it must be some, it ha- must have something to do with the heat conduction. And when we put the rocks on top of the, um, mesh, um, it worked. So, yeah. So how, um, so you mentioned that you had read through the existing literature on how people thought this birch tar would have been made. Um, how, once you had managed to actually go out into the field and successfully make it with these different methods, how close did you end up being to what people thought before? Um, I think, I think, I think a lot of people were actually really close. Um, and for example, the raised structure, there is a team from the UK that, uh, that was really close and they had like, um, tar, <laughs> which, which must have been incredibly frustrating for them. They had tar forming on their thermocouples, oh, no. which is what you, which is what you have to, to measure the temperature. But it was so little. It was almost, it was nothing. Um, you know, and we actually had like a really good amount. We got as much as we find, uh, in the archaeological record. Um, I think what we improved is that we, um, rather than putting the birch bark in the hole with a container or sort of putting it below ground, we put it above the ground and we put the fire above ground because we realized that if you see, um, if you sort of see the dome as a reaction chamber, it, it didn't get hot enough. So previously people left the fire to burn for very long. Um, we actually don't think that that was the problem. It was just the temperature that may have just stayed uh, too low because they also covered the dome with sods from the earth. And it probably just took forever to to dry and for the heat to penetrate. So they, I think they were really close and all. Yeah, we just, I wouldn't say we rearranged a few things. We tried it the way they did. And then we learned, we, we learned from that. Yeah. 
So this birch tar, um, as an adhesive, does it does it cure over time or does it stay sticky like pine sap? Um, well, it depends on the on the production method. So if you produce it in a lab, um, in um, a completely oxygen deprived environment, and nothing escapes, so you have all the volatiles, you collect all the volatiles, then it's very watery. Um, and you cannot actually use it, uh, not as an adhesive at least. Um, so you need to boil it down. But if you make it in, let's say, not such ideal circumstances where a lot of the vapor is lost, um, you end up with something that is more a sticky and a thick substance. Um, what we've also done in our project is that we've... Uh, We've added things to these recipes or to the uh, to these adhesives, and one of the things that we found that worked really well is adding charcoal to um, to uh, a tar uh, adhesive. So it actually, up to a certain extent, it actually improves the the strength of an adhesive. So, so yeah, you've also looked at uh, compound adhesives. How are those different from something like the birch tar? Well, in principle, the birch tar works perfectly on its own. It may require, as I said, some some boiling uh, where it becomes thicker, so you can apply it. But compound adhesives uh, are mixtures. And they consist in uh, Southern Africa, uh, where uh, it, which is their claim to fame, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, they are found in combination. So it's tree resins uh, with uh, mainly ochre and possibly um, some plasticizer like beeswax, but that hasn't been actually chemically shown that they that people were using beeswax. It may have been f- animal fat, or they may have done it without. Uh, a plasticizer, although I probably would have left them with a, a very brittle adhesives. Um, but um, there's also this idea that uh, the one resin that was chemically tested in Southern Africa, um, that that was mixed with bone. Hmm. So what, um, so are these adhesives, are they stronger or do they last longer? Why would you go through the effort of adding multiple yeah. ingredients together? Yeah, that's well, we definitely know that they're stronger when we look at um, tree resins. So that's a different story from gums. So the acacia tree, for example, makes a gum and that's water soluble. Mm-hmm. Um, pine trees make tree resin and that's not water soluble. So those are oh. very different. Uh, uh, compounds, but when you look at uh, pine resins, uh, when they dry, they become very brittle, mm-hmm. and mm, that is probably means that they are too fragile to work in a haft. So by adding ochre and by adding a plasticizer, um, they yeah their their strength increases, um, and um, oh sorry, there's a word for this and I forgot now. Anyway, what it means is that they are also less likely uh, to deform, and that's really important. Uh, so they uh, they don't shatter on impact as quickly. They're more, able to withstand. They're more ductile. Yeah, ductile. That's the word. Yes, <laughs> they're more ductile. And um, um, and what is interesting is that a lot of people think that a lot of archaeologists think that uh, ancient people used um, acacia gum, although. This has not been chemically proven, 
um, and that they would mix this with ochre. Uh, but adding the ochre actually decreases strength, we found. We, we've, we've tested this in some really high-tech machines at uh, an aerospace department at a technical university in the Netherlands, which was a lot of fun to do. <laughs> and um, so we, we found that it actually decreased the strength. Um, and what we then did is that we did a field experiment where we also took the same adhesives that we had tested in this super high-tech lab and we made hafts and we used them uh, in a very specific uh, for a very specific tool type and we uh, cleaned animal hides with them and what we found is that the acacia gum doesn't yeah it maybe it decreases the strength and but in in the setting of scraping this hide it didn't matter it was still strong enough but what the ochre did do is that um, it turned the gum into something more like a, like a clay it became many very manageable so where you would otherwise end up with really dirty hands because the the gum gets everywhere it's very sticky um, now your hands actually remained relatively clean and um, it made it very pliable oh, okay. so maybe there are also other aspects than just simple strength. Um, so I think the nice thing about what we do is that we we do the high-tech stuff and we do sort of the dirty field experiments. And together, uh, combining all this work, we get really nice insights in um, you know what what were the reasons why, why people may have been selecting certain adhesives over others. So with these compound adhesives, the the tree resins or tree gums and ochre, is is there any idea how long these would have been regularly used by people? Were they uh, were they taken over by other types of adhesives later on? Uh, yeah. Well, we don't we don't really know, and um, and that's it, it's. It's partly, I think, because this, uh, this field is sort of emerging. So people previously were very happy to say, archaeologists, I should say, previously were very happy to say, well, uh, this is resin or this is an adhesive, um, without actually chemically testing what they had. And, um, so it's, it's difficult to say if things were replaced with, with other types. And, and that's actually a really interesting question. What we, for example, also would love to know if people were using different adhesives at the same time, perhaps mm. for other tasks. Um, that would be, for example, a wonderful way to show that uh, Neanderthals had a very flexible technology. And that then might bring us a little bit closer to looking into the mind of Neanderthals. Um, we know that uh, for really later time periods, there's a professor in Nice, Martina Reger, and she has shown that um, pine resin is replaced by tar. But we're, we're really talking about uh, Iron Age uh, and the Copper Age. So really, uh, you know, it n- n- has nothing to do with our hunter-gatherers anymore. So why was um, birch tar getting used by the Neanderthals, but not down in Africa, like the compound adhesives? Or I suppose we may just not have evidence of it. Yeah, well, um, that's something that we're trying to answer. So it's this is a, a big question for us as well. And uh, my PhD student, Paul Kosowik, is 
working specifically on that question. So he's looking at, uh, so one of the aspects, for example, he's also looking at is preservation. And um, that's work in progress. Um, but he's trying to figure out that, you know, we keep finding birch bark tar for Neanderthals, but is that a result of preservation or is it like really selected use? Um, yeah, keep, yeah, keep paying attention to his papers and you'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> so if you, uh, if you could find, run across one piece of evidence that would answer a question about ancient adhesives, what would you love to find? Oh, I think I would, I would love to find a production site. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, or a lot of tools <laughs> with adhesives. <laughs> because it's, I think, uh, the, the, at the moment, what we really lack is, uh, is data. So a lot of archaeological tools where we get insight into, uh, variability. Um, and that's really missing. And, um, yeah, I, just personally, I would love to see what they now actually use, these Neanderthals. You know, we, we discovered three methods. It's very likely that there are many more methods uh, that you could use to produce tar. I think what we've done is we've showed it's likely that they used these methods, but wouldn't it be fun to know exactly what they used? But the only way to find that out is to actually find a production site. Yeah. Oh, dear. Well, it's hopefully one of those will show up sooner or later. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. Thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure. You can learn more about Dr. Longa Jans and find links to information about the early human use of plants at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. There you can also find past episodes, our social media links, and learn how to support the show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>